We're going to begin with English comedian and outspoken atheist Stephen Fry. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. What kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. Now, my work for the ensuing half hour and change is actually to convince you that everything we've heard from Mr. Fry is actually entirely correct. And as usual, we'll get there by way of the scriptures. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible or have yet to memorize the order of the books, feel free to consult the table of contents. Yeah, that was my first joke, by the way. Uh, you see, the nature of the joke is that it's unrealistic to expect that you've memorized the order of the books of the Bible, but I behaved as though you might have memorized them. You see how that's funny? Do you guys not remember how I do jokes? You'll, you'll adjust to them. I've got a few more coming. You'll like the second and third one more than the first one. They, they always do. All right, surely you're in Daniel 10 by now, yes? Daniel 10? Let's read beginning with the first verse. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks we're over. So pause for a moment. Uh, context, here we have a gentleman called Daniel who gets very serious news about a great war. So he responds very seriously. Certain uh, disciplines of abstinence and prayer. He orients himself toward God and God responds. Skip down to verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now pay close attention to what happens next. Verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But... The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. 
Now, the king of Persia uh, or the prince of the Persian kingdom or the chief being called Michael, in context, they aren't actual human rulers on thrones, but they are spiritual beings that have been given authority over geographic locations. Sometimes in theology, they're called territorial spirits. So in the story, Daniel prays. Uh, He asks God to intervene in his life and the world around him. And then later in the story, we learn that God had responded immediately. He dispatched a spiritual being as an answer to Daniel's prayer. And yet, the response in question was delayed, not according to God's mysterious purposes, but because an opposing being in the spiritual realm was able to delay it. Now, consider for a moment the implications of this simple, short, strange little story. If one spiritual entity resisting another spiritual entity can delay an answer to prayer, does it logically follow that it could stifle a prayer altogether? Has this ever happened to you when you pray, and how could you possibly know? Or then in even broader terms, if spiritual beings can do that, what else can they do? What else have they done? So for weeks now, uh, you've been slowly working your way through what is, uh, for many of you, maybe a challenging new way of understanding the world. For others, the paradigm itself isn't necessarily a new one, but actually living as though this paradigm were a reality, that's a different story. And if you think back for a moment, it's, it's actually been quite a wild ride. You've talked about the primary antagonist of the Bible's stories, a creature called the devil. And this creature isn't alone. The, the universe, we've learned, is made up of two overlapping realities, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And both realms are populated with very real beings with power to interact with and affect both dimensions of reality, for better or for worse. And this means that we as human beings can interact with and affect the spiritual realm. So we can pray against demonic oppression and stuff happens, or we can ask for God's help and stuff happens as a result. But it works the other way as well. And because of that, we need to remember that spiritual entities can affect matter, meaning spiritual beings can interact with the physical realm. They are not relegated entirely to the invisible realm. And in the same way that there are human and spiritual beings on God's side, there are human and spiritual beings who are set against God. The spiritual beings set against God are often called the enemy. And the enemy's primary objective is to murder and to destroy. And you've already discussed his primary method of doing that, which is by deceit or lies. So what I'd like to do this evening is to take all of this work that you've been doing, we've been doing the same thing at my church, Fan City, just across the river, and carry it to its logical conclusion. And when we get there, we're going to be made to grapple with something quite serious. Are you guys ready to do some work? You all right? Got your thinking caps on? Great, thank you. All right, bear with me. We're going to have to unpack a few complicated things, but hang in there. We're we're en route to something quite important because, and and please listen, though deceit is the go-to strategy of the enemy, he primarily uses lies, it isn't the only thing he does, and it isn't the only thing he can do. So turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Um, I'm going to make you, uh, hold on to your Bibles, I'm going to make you flip around a little bit this evening. Not as bad as John Mark, sometimes, sometimes he makes you guys go like all the way back and forth for like one sentence and stuff like that. It's like, man, we're really, <laughs> that wasn't one of the jokes, I was really making that observation. All right, we're going to spend the next little stretch unpacking three really broad categories, sickness and death, natural evil, and chaos. And these also happen to be the same talking points that I use for dinner parties. To make all the, yeah, see? Second joke is better than the first one. 
<laughs> I'm trying to help you guys adjust to the tone. You know, you've had two weeks of Australians, actually, so I don't, I don't know how to follow the I assume that humor is more like, you know, the really difficult, the truly difficult part of trying to get into the pouch of a kangaroo, <laughs> ride it all the way to Outback Steakhouse, you know, whatever. Foster's, <laughs> Crocodile Dundee, you know. <laughs> really, I'm trying to earn the angry email. Every time I'm here, I get an angry email or two. <laughs> so uh, now it'll come from Australians. Um, now, where was I? Oh, right. So we're trying to build out these three paradigms so that we can construct something called a spiritual warfare theodicy. Now, a theodicy is an answer to the problem of evil. And the problem of evil, I'm sure a lot of you guys know all about it. It's a, it's a huge issue in philosophy and theology. And it goes, if God is always good and if God is all-powerful, then why is there still so much evil in the world? And how you answer that question is your theodicy. All right, Mark chapter 9. Are you guys there? Let's begin with verse 14. <clears throat> when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, this is one of my favorite lines in all the gospel stories, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Okay, obviously there's, there's a lot here, but for our purposes this evening, let me pose a question. Was the boy in the story sick or oppressed by an evil spirit? Who did the yes thing? Man, you guys, okay, wow. Yeah, good, you're right. <laughs> he was so happy too, he was like, me. <clears throat> the father in the story describes his son as being, and I quote, possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. But the malady is clearly twofold. There's a physical ailment and there's demonic oppression. Now, in the modern world, the tendency is to simply read this prognosis as a primitive one. The boy was probably epileptic or mute, and ancient peoples tended to associate certain disorders with evil spirits because they didn't know any better, but now we know better. But the problem with that is, of course, that Jesus performs an exorcism, and it works. 
the boy who had been mute shrieks all of a sudden. And Jesus doesn't simply do a healing work against epilepsy. He could have done that, I suppose. Instead, he speaks directly to a personified entity, drawing a distinction between the boy and the entity. And he asks it to come out, saying, and I quote, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So if you ask the question, well, is Jesus healing the boy or is he casting out the demon? The answer is obviously he's doing both. The distinction between the two is is not one that gets made by Jesus or the gospel authors. They want us to see Jesus' work of healing and of casting out demons as irrevocably connected ideas. For Jesus, sickness and suffering are not imposed by God. They're not God's will at all, actually, but the work of someone the New Testament calls the devil or Hasatan, the Satan. And of course, this worldview is not unique to just this one gospel story. The authors of Scripture, the earliest disciples of Jesus, the earliest church fathers believed the same thing that here gets summarized really nicely in Acts chapter 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and, listen, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So for the authors of Scripture, Jesus' work in healing the sick is not at all dissimilar to his work of casting out demons. Let's look at one more long example from Luke's gospel. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you're set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So this brings us to the very first important point in building a spiritual warfare theodicy. Spiritual beings have the ability to afflict human beings with physical and mental illness. Now, this point presupposes the belief that just as human beings have been created with agency, meaning freedom to do what we want, spiritual beings have been given the same autonomy. Why? Couldn't God just get what he wants by exercising unilateral control over creation? Well, sure, I suppose he could, but then there would be no relationship. There would be no collaboration. There would be no genuine sense of love. And God fervently desires all three. That much is clear from Genesis to Revelation. So look at the way one little-known thinker called C.S. Lewis summarizes the idea. That was a small joke, by the way, because everyone knows who he is. You get it. Anyway, God created things which had free will. That means creatures can go wrong or right. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. 
If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it, it is worth paying. So, you've got human beings with freedom and spiritual beings with freedom, and both of them are fully capable of good and evil. And if you think back to the video with John Mark and Tim Mackey, you can go back and look at it in the podcast if you missed it. Tim actually puts it really well. He says the spiritual and physical realms, or he calls them celestial and terrestrial realms, are two distinct realities, but they overlap. And the spiritual entities that inflict evil don't just inflict evil on human beings. If you think back to Stephen Fry's critique of God at the beginning of the teaching, he mentioned a, a parasitic worm. Uh, call, it's actually called a loa loa worm if you want to look it up and have fun with that. Um, he mentioned as, as a kind of evil that exists in nature. And why, he asked, and I would argue quite justifiably, why create such a thing? So turn to the right in your Bibles to a letter we call Romans chapter 8. If you're in Mark, that's just a few books to the right. Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. This is a letter drafted by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul, and it has some fantastic insight about what's going on in the world. So when you get to Romans 8, let's read beginning with verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For, listen... Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So yes, there are creatures in the animal kingdom, parasites, that feed off of other living things in grotesque and even detrimental ways. But really, Stephen Fry could have mentioned any number of horrors in the natural world. Uh, uh, If you've ever watched a single episode of Planet Earth, uh, you've seen like a G-rated glimpse into the often cruel and unforgiving world of the animal kingdom. Um, For example, the ichneumon wasp is an insect that lays eggs in the body of a living host, which in turn devour the host from the inside out and then erupt out of its body when they reach maturity. And while studying the ichneumon wasp, Charles, Charles Darwin was struggling with his dwindling belief in a good God, and he actually wrote about it in a letter to a friend when he said, I'm bewildered. I had no intention to write atheistically, but I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do and as I wish to do. Evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumon wasps with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars or that a cat should play with mice. What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horridly cruel works of nature." Many species 
of animals uh, abandon or kill or even devour their own newborns for reasons that escape scientific research. The animal kingdom is often a violent and cruel world overflowing with abject suffering. And the animals are only one aspect of what we call nature. There are hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And sure, we're responsible for some of those in the modern world, but they've been going on well before us and, and often without any cause from human interaction. So why? Why does that happen? The early church responded to this question with the understanding of two overlapping dimensions of reality. And maybe that sounds a bit kooky to some of you or, or strange or new, but the early church actually uniformly argued that spiritual beings like human beings were created free and that they, like humans, are given influence and responsibility in the world. And we have to add to that what we've already learned from Jesus in John chapter 8, what's been kind of a landmark passage for this series. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And that language actually implies from the very, very, very beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So point number two in building a spiritual warfare theodicy, spiritual beings have the ability to afflict the natural order, creation itself, with evil, suffering, and even death. And now that we have the first two building blocks in place, we can begin to make sense of the final piece, which is a concept called chaos. Now, in the conversation around finding balance in the supernatural worldview, there's often a frustratingly ambiguous gray area because we are, are in theory at least, learning to become the type of people who take the supernatural realm very seriously without becoming the type of people who blame the devil for everything from like a cough to a parking ticket or whatever it might be. And that brings us to this idea of chaos. Now, hang with me for just a second. A branch of mathematics called chaos theory, if you've seen Jurassic Park, you know all about it. It reveals that any complicated system can be massively affected by seemingly insignificant happenings along the way. So the slightest variation in a sufficiently complex process at one point can cause remarkable variations in that process at another point. And it's sometimes called the butterfly effect, if you've ever heard of that. The idea is that, pardon me, the idea is that if a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the globe under the right conditions, that can become the decisive variable that brings about a hurricane in another part of the globe several months later. And if you're like, how did we get here? Here's why this matters. (laughs) Our world... And our lives and our own souls, according to the scriptures, are in some sense broken. They are bent out of shape. They are bent away from what is true and good and toward that which destroys us. So, in the world we know, wasps lay eggs in caterpillar larvae, and hurricanes destroy entire cities, and the world is ravaged by death because both humans and angelic beings are created with freedom, And because that freedom is often used to do evil, and creation itself pays an ongoing price. But you know from experience in your own life and the lives of people around you that even a simple single act of evil, a cutting word, a fractured relationship between two people, a lie that you tell in passing, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has consequences 
And the same is true on a cosmic scale. Simple actions set in motion ripples in the water of the universe, as it were. And those ripples intersect with other ripples. And now, because our world is broken and ravaged by evil, we are often victimized by that evil simply because of complicated patterns of chaos. And there are two, actually, I would argue, two variations of demonic involvement in the world and in your life. There's direct demonic activity and indirect demonic activity. Now, direct demonic activity or oppression is obvious enough. The exorcism stories of Jesus, and believe it or not, that same type of thing continues to happen in the world today, in your city, in my city, in this building on a regular basis. Um, Or things like a mass shooting, a, a horrifying child abuse, things that you look at and you go, there's something there beyond just the brokenness of people. Direct demonic activity. Now, indirect demonic activity is, I would argue, any and all kinds of evil that, for all we know, may not be personally energized and enabled by an evil spirit, but that is demonic even so, simply because all evil itself is demonic. It originates in Satan and his kingdom, and it belongs to him. So it's all, all evil is either directly or indirectly demonic. And in both cases, we as apprentices of Jesus are to follow in Jesus' example in recognizing evil for what it is and where it comes from. Scholar Greg Boyd says it well when he puts it like this. When one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. So consider this then. If part of our broken creation is inherently chaotic, in the wake of autonomous wills and infinite variables and demonic influence and circumstance and chaos and natural evil, how does God intervene in all that? When we pray for protection or against evil forces or for healing or when we pray for the people in our lives to come to faith in Jesus, in what ways does God respond? Let me try to answer that with a flawed but okay metaphor, if you guys will let me. So imagine for a moment that there's a small house situated in the midst of a war-torn countryside, and that countryside is occupied by a powerful enemy. And the family that resides in the house is made up of the wife and children and grandchildren of a head captain who's currently away fighting the enemy, wrapped up in, in a war against the invaders. Now imagine that in that house, there's some kind of small radio that communicates without fail to a device that this captain carries on his person while he's away at war at all times. And let's say the family radios to the captain to inform him that they've fallen victim to an attack or that they need supplies or that one of them is wounded or has fallen ill. The captain hears those requests and he cares tremendously for this family and for the things that are happening to them on a big and small scale. And even so, He's part of a larger battle, and there are thousands of lives to consider, presumably some immediate skirmish going on that moment. So sometimes the captain meets his family's requests, sometimes immediately so. Sometimes they're a tad delayed, as was the case with the angel and Daniel. And the family, from where they sit, lack the broad perspective of the captain, so they have to trust that the captain cares for them. They take for granted that what he wants is to meet all their needs all the time and that he works to do so with every resource at his disposal. But 
It isn't possible for the captain to intervene in every way, even the way that he'd like to. But obviously, it's a metaphor, so it breaks down, and you have to ask, well, God's not like a captain. You know, he's all-powerful, for one thing. So is really anything impossible for God? And if you think about it for a moment, you know, we all know what we mean collectively when we sing song lyrics that say, nothing is impossible for you, God. Or when we say um, things out of the scriptures, with God all things are possible. Or even from the language of Jesus earlier, anything is possible for the one who believes. But these are deep-seated truth statements. They're not metaphysical truth assertions. And what I mean by that is that we all agree that there's some things that God can't do in the, in the logical sense. You know, God cannot sin, um, for one, so that's something God can't do. It's impossible. God cannot be tempted in the language of James. God is, never tempts anyone and cannot be tempted himself. God can also not violate the law of contradiction, so he can't make a round triangle or a married bachelor or something like that. And similarly, God cannot sovereignly decree that the cosmos, cosmos is both free and also not so free. If the cosmos is indeed free, then by definition, free agents are free to go this way or go that way. If God intervenes in such a way that he decrees, well, right now you can only go this way, then we're no longer free. For God to respond to every prayer in keeping with his heart, his desire, his will, he would have to, at least at times, revoke freedom. And as far as we can tell from the scriptures and from our own experience, he doesn't do that. Irrevocability is built into the very definition of free will. And this means, I'm afraid, that you and I are confronted with a life that is inherently chaotic, riddled with evil, and set before the inevitability of all kinds of suffering and ultimately death. At this point, I'd like to point out I also officiate weddings. <laughs> This is the worst joke I've ever written in a teaching, but people laugh. <laughs> even so, even though if we're realistic with ourselves and one another in the story of the Scriptures, if we acknowledge the fact that we are up against some horrible things, this is not a realization without hope. Really, one way of understanding the entire biblical narrative is that it is the story of an ongoing cosmic war. And if you liken that narrative to other stories of war from our own experience, it begins to make a little bit more sense. So one story from history a lot of you guys know is that on June 6, uh, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beach of Normandy, France. They defeated the German military there. And historians apparently generally agree that this was the decisive victory moment in that war because this battle ensured the victory of the Allied forces against Germany in the broad sense. Now, it took another full year or more of fighting before V-Day was actually declared and the war was put to an end. But the war had been won in principle uh, in a single battle at least a year before that. Again, this from Boyd. He says, in the same way, Christ in principle defeated the powers with the unsurpassable love he unleashed through his incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting for V-Day. In the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. Indeed, sometimes an enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. So in our story, in the story of the Scriptures, the hero has already rescued his love. The enemy has already been defeated, 
And on a coming day, all of the enemy's evil will be completely eradicated for good. And I would argue personally that one of the most essential aspects of understanding your fight against the devil is understanding what he does and what God does and understanding that the two are never alike. In the words of Jesus himself, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you see that distinction? One brings death and the other life. It's really that simple. Radically opposite poles. God's purpose for you is not death. Do you understand that? My heart honestly breaks and my stomach turns when some vile thing happens in the brokenness of our world, a mass shooting, a hurricane, whatever, and I hear platitudes on the lips of well-meaning sympathizers when they trudge up the old expressions like, well, you know, God's in control, God has a reason, or something like that. And I always think and frankly say, God didn't do that. I heard someone stand before a congregation once and claim that though his father had physically abused him for years, God had planned that with this great purpose in mind for his life. God did not do that. A broken man did that, and he did it according to the will of Satan, not God. At my own dad's funeral, a pastor opened up the proceedings with a prayer, and he said, God, you're sovereign over death, and you give and you take away. And then I stepped up to the microphone moments later, and I said, God did not take my dad. The enemy did. But not for long. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this matters Because how can you go to battle with an enemy if you attribute his work to God's will, to God's control or God's mysterious purposes in your life? How can you hope to understand God if you impose on him the murderous work of the evil one? Recently, I I was wrestling with my kids. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And, you know, you you got to have a wrestling match. It's a thing you do as a parent. And uh, someone always gets injured. That's how it's over. (laughs) You know, one of them starts crying. You're like, well, that's it. Um, but you got to try. And so we're wrestling around on the couch, and I was like throwing my four-year-old son down, ba-boom, and then uh, I hear ba-boom behind me. I'm nowhere near my two-year-old daughter. She just fell off the couch by herself. I think she's so excited, she just like <laughs> flung herself backwards off the couch. And she was hurt, and she started to cry. Not seriously hurt, but she started to cry. And I put, picked her up, and I was like, oh, Isla, what happened? And she was like, Dada pushed me. And I was like, what? No, I didn't. I was nowhere near you. A second ago, maybe, but, you know. <laughs> but I held her, and I said, no, no. Dada would never, ever, ever push you, Isla. Um, you got knocked over. But it wasn't me, and, and I would never do that. I, would ne- I sat there, and I told my two-year-old, and she was, you know, she forgave me in one second and forgot what she said, but <laughs> I was like, you need to know, like, Dad, it will not hurt you. He does not push you. That's not what I do. It, it wasn't me, and I realize that's a silly-sounding analogy, but as a dad, I honestly, for a moment, I felt this horrible pang at even my daughter's briefly held little assumption that I would ever intentionally hurt her. So can you imagine how God the Father must feel to have the devil's work attributed to him? You know, following the, uh, the Japanese tsunami of 2011 in which nearly uh, 20,000 men, women, and children were killed, many in an instance, 
Uh, of course, there were pastors and thinkers uh, who spoke up to attribute the tsunami and its effects to the work of God, God's control, God's plan. And a theologian named David Bentley Hart became so deeply troubled by this claim that he authored a small book in response called The Doors of the Sea. And it's this scathing indictment of the idea that God was in control of such a thing. And I want to read you guys a small quote. It's strongly worded, to say the least, and it's not to ruffle any feathers. I actually just want us to read this and consider something important before we end. He writes this, If indeed there were a God whose true nature, whose justice and sovereignty were revealed in the death of a child or the dereliction of a soul or a predestined hell, then it would be no great transgression to think of him as a kind of malevolent or contemptible demiurge or lesser God and to hate him and to deny him worship and to seek a better God than he. And here, David Bentley Hart is connecting with the gentleman who began our time together, Stephen Fry, because there is a being at work in the universe, one the scriptures actually do describe as a God, the God of this age and this God's work is indeed revealed in the death of a child. And it is indeed no great transgression to think of him as a kind of malevolent, lesser God, and to hate him, and to deny him worship, and to seek a better God than he. Now, I began this teaching by claiming that Mr. Fry was entirely correct. I just think he was talking to the wrong God. To the one responsible, I actually stand in solidarity with Mr. Fry and say, just like he did, bone cancer in children, how dare you? How dare you corrupt a world and fill it with such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should we respect a capricious, mean-minded, lesser God who creates an order of things that is so full of injustice and pain? That is not our God. This lesser God, we denounce just as we denounce his work and the toll it has taken on our world. So no, Satan is likely not responsible personally for your particular headache, but all that is not good is either directly or indirectly connected to the evil one, and we will blame God for none of it. And when we are berated with stories of marriages undone by unfaithfulness and relationships that are broken by selfishness and deceit, when we read on the news about synagogue shootings and children abused or neglected and starving of foster children who are waiting in an office terrified and now no home to go to, we recognize that God is not the one in control over those things. The evil one is, but not for long. And together, we join our teacher, our master, our Lord Jesus in rebuking the evil one, pushing his parade of darkness and despair back as we await a coming day when Jesus will crush the serpent's head once and for all and he will never steal nor kill nor destroy ever again. The liar comes to do these things, but Jesus comes to give life and life to the fullest. And we stand with him in his kingdom. So would you guys go ahead and stand with me and let's pray and invite the spirit to come and speak.